they will pick from anything that they can to try to scare people and to try and validate these idiotic things that they believe. The fear of this thing oppressing or possessing you is something that they need to feed in you. It's not always churches. It's not always big functions. It's not always overhyped meetings. No, a lot of these atrocities happen in people's living rooms. You need someone to validate what is going on with you and not point fingers in the direction of supernatural anything because that is not where the solutions are going to be found period. I've been there and I know what it can do when you just step one little toe into this kind of thought. And I've always been a rational person. I've always been a smart person, but even I believed in this enough to start anointing doorposts with oil. Their brains had become so addled by the Kool-Aid that they just didn't understand that this was wrong. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get unbound. So pop quiz, what do you get when you cross things like epilepsy, anxiety, personality disorders, and depression with evangelical thought? What? You get a case of possession obsession. (laughs) Oh, God, that was so pitchy, but I'm leaving it in because that's just where I'm at tonight. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we are going to be talking about the subject of exorcism, demon possession and exorcism. But we've discussed demon possession on the show a few times especially in the context of mental health right? and getting an actual counselor or therapist that's going to help you with these things and not just stamp it all as demon possession. But tonight I want to talk more specifically about the subject of exorcism, how far back it goes, what the evangelical tie-in is, and spoiler alert, there is a big one for this. (laughs) And I'll go as far as to say that evangelicals have kind of cornered the market on this and taught society what it is supposed to look like and what the outcomes are supposed to be. And there's just a lot. There's a lot to dig through with this tonight. But before we get into that, maybe we need a new segment for this show called Mm. Setting the Record Straight. You know, whenever Spider fucks something up. (laughs) Um, Now, one of the first things that I was taught when I got into broadcasting and radio is that you're not supposed to draw attention to your mistakes. But here's the thing. I discovered something after we got done recording last week's episode. At the very beginning, I made reference to St. Patrick. Right. And the whole notion of St. Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland. And in a very tongue-in-cheek way, I said, I assure you, there are plenty of snakes in Ireland. Well, after we got done recording, I tuned into my audio uncles at the How To Heretic. And at the very end of their last episode, they did a little segment on St. Patrick. And one of the things that they said really surprised me. They said that there are no snakes in Ireland, but that it has nothing to do with him. (laughs) So going back, looking at the fossil record, it's true. I went and looked this up. There are no snakes in Ireland. That's wild. And that is wild. I have no clue why there wouldn't be at least just your average, I almost said garden variety snakes, but that's what I'm thinking of is the little snakes that we get around here. You know, the ones that are in the garden, the corn snakes, the garter snakes, no snakes, zero snakes in Ireland. I had (laughs) no clue. I was last week years old when I learned that. So the reason why I bring it up is because I just feel like it is imperative that the messaging that any of us, not just this show, but for atheists in general, in any way, shape, or form that the things that we say and comment on touch Christianity or any manner of religious faith, it needs to be accurate. Yeah. Because first it starts out with there being snakes in Ireland, and then it escalates and snowballs into other things. And you expect your audience to just take it at base value. Well, as I've said many times before, I absolutely do not expect my audience to take the things that I say at base value. I expect them to vet the things that I say. 
And when I'm wrong, I expect to be called out. Now, right. I was very passively called out on this one because it was just a couple of days later and I had a wait what moment with this. <laughs> so it's not like we got any angry emails about it. It probably went over a lot of people's heads. But the point that I'm making with this is that it is important that the things that we say are true. Right. It is paramount important that the things that we say are verifiable because if we fall short in that area, then I feel like we're doing the same things that they do. Right. And just expecting people to believe it because someone who is a quote unquote authority says it. No, always question authority, especially podcast hosts. Okay. (laughs) Don't get your news. Don't get your beliefs in anything from a podcast. This is a resource that is meant to help you understand, especially for ex-evangelicals, to understand where you've come from and hopefully give a little bit better picture of where you're going in terms of this life. The only one that we get that we know of. So accuracy and truthfulness are important. And in any aspect of this thing that we call atheism, if we're wrong, then we have to be willing to admit it. Why? Because they are not. Right. And that's where their credibility just falls apart. There's nothing wrong with being wrong, but admit it. So guess what? There are no snakes in Ireland. I fucked up. And that's just that. And just one more quick note of business before we get moving with this. Our Patreon account is up at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network. If you are in the position of supporting what we're doing here with the show, we would greatly appreciate the help. Any amount of money is going to help us at this point. And if you are still in a position where it's just a tough thing to do, but it's on your to-do list, just keep it tucked away and enjoy the show. We're here for you and we want you to get what you need out of it. And I think that's going to be the shortest appeal for support that I've done yet. But I just really, really want to get into this topic And just expose the shit out of what some of these people have been doing just in the last couple of years. So let's get to it. Let's start out with some fun facts about exorcism. First, the concept of demon possession is largely absent in the Old Testament. Largely, it's almost completely absent in the Old Testament. But the New Testament is rife with descriptions of people under demonic influence. And I will qualify that with a few references in just a couple of minutes. Nearly every description of demon possession in the New Testament reeks of mental illness, a concept that there was no scientific structure to define or treat at the time. We know better now. We know better about these things, and we know better about some physical maladies that get associated with demon possession like epilepsy. We know better what these things are now. We can treat them, and it doesn't require a Bible, a dram of oil, or anything else. Mm. Countries that experience significant periods of religious upheaval are more prone to cases of demonic possession and the use of exorcism to remedy them than those who are largely atheist. Most societies have their things that crop up at different times in their in, in their history, in their development. I even remember reading a few years ago that certain types of horror movies yeah. are more popular in times of recession right. than times of economic growth. Right. I think that the way that it went was that you see more vampire movies and zombie movies mm-hmm. when the economy is bad, that it's more well-received by the audience that would consume that content. So culture and the state of affairs where you live has a lot to do with the way that we think about a lot of things, not just horror movies and not just demon possession. It manifests in a lot of different ways. But I do think that it's significant that countries that experience more religious turmoil are more prone to report that these things are happening. And I think that that is part of an effort to validate their belief because belief is the only thing that they have when they can't count on their government, when they can't count on each other, and when there's infighting within the religion itself, you need reminders that this is something that is quote-unquote right. And the increase in instances of quote-unquote demon possession, I think, are a manifestation of that. Next, nearly everything 
the average person knows about demon possession and exorcism comes from just one source, and that is the movie The Exorcist. Hmm. Now, there are some things in this movie that aren't all that far off when it comes to the types of things that people, quote-unquote, display in instances of alleged demon possession, but most of it is way, way, way out there. Yeah. But this is what people associate with the concept of exorcism because we we learn way too much as a culture in America we learn way too much from movies and TV and not enough from practical sources textbooks history etc and so on we learn what we learn by the moving pictures that we see in front of us it's a really bad habit that we've gotten ourselves into but it's here and it's not going anywhere right. and that's really problematic I think maybe one good thing about that is that it also kind of shifts the focus more to the Catholic end of things. And I'm sure that there are a lot of evangelicals out there that think that's a good thing because of the way that they manage it and the things that have happened in the name of evangelical exorcism. And we'll get to some examples of that a little bit later, too. Next, and we have brought this up before, demon possession is the prevailing diagnosis for clients of Christian counselors because they've got nothing else. Right. They have no means of actually diagnosing anything. I mean, for the most part, if you want to listen to our episode on Christian counseling, I get into this a lot more, but most of these people may as well have just gotten their doctorates out of cereal boxes. Right. That's about as much as they're worth. Next... Even members of the scientific and mental health communities have been guilty of blaming demon possession for mental and emotional health issues. These pronouncements, however, almost always come from theist counselors, doctors, and mental health professionals. In other words, the ones that believe in God are more likely to lend deference to the possibility of demon possession. They're few and far between, but they are out there. Next, the patients or client or quote-unquote, affected person, however you want to look at this, their religious opinions are the biggest deciding factor in whether or not they will ever experience demonic possession and or respond to exorcism as a remedy. So here we go right back to the power of belief. You can convince yourself that you have demons, Mm -hmm. and you can convince yourself that you no longer have demons. And it all has to do with how mired you are in your religion, how devout you are about what you believe, how strongly you believe that this is something that is happening to you. And the more you believe it, the easier it is for the people who are trying to quote unquote deliver you to get you into a place of compliance with what they want. And just the fact that you took action to solve this little problem in your life will make your brain tell you that it's gone away. Right. The more religious you are, the more likely you are to embrace this, and the more likely you are to endorse the benefits of it later. Next, with the exception of 16th and 17th century Europe, exorcism is more popular today than it has ever been in recorded history. And it is far from an American or exclusively evangelical problem. But like I said before... Evangelicals have picked up this ball and they have run with it, especially in the last couple of years. And it's been bad for a long time, but just the last couple of years has seen an insane upsurge. And like any other social blight, evangelicals have seized upon and go great lengths to exploit the concept of demon possession and exorcism in society and their phobious and alarmist reaction to otherwise treatable and manageable mental health issues outshine any practical response lastly i kind of spoiled this with my little snarky opening but Mm -hmm. i'm going but i'm going to uh, read it anyway everything from depression and anxiety to personality disorders to issues like obesity epilepsy high blood pressure vision problems and much much more are routinely blamed on demonic influence in an alarming majority of evangelical communities and churches oh that wasn't last here's the last part Exorcism is big business, and we're going to get into that a little bit more in a few minutes, too. But let's look at a few cases of exorcism in the New Testament. Now, the vast majority of these and the only ones that I can see that were really effective 
were the ones that were performed by Jesus. There was a little bit in the book of Acts, but nowhere near what you see in the synoptics. I don't think, and I'd have to vet this just a little bit more, but I don't think that John's gospel gets into this that much. Mm. I think that most of what you're going to see about demon possession and exorcism is going to come from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And just to give a few examples of this, Mark 1, 21 through 28 tells the story of the man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue at Capernaum whom Jesus delivered from a demon. In Mark 5, 1 through 20, we read about the demoniac man. In Matthew, it's actually two men. More of that wonderful biblical continuity. (laughs) So Matthew says it was two men, but everyone's heard this story. It's the story of Legion. Jesus asks the demon, what's your name? And the demon says, Legion, for we are many. And the legion of demons is then cast into a bunch of pigs. Those pigs jump off a cliff to their death. Then there's Mark 7, 24 through 30, where we see the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman possessed by an unclean spirit or demon. She was probably just a bratty kid or had some kind of personality disorder. Yeah. In Mark 9, 14 through 29, the boy with a dumb spirit, often called the epileptic boy, you know, they knew. Not the writers. The writers of this didn't know what epilepsy was. But modern translators, people who worked on versions like the NIV, yeah, absolutely knew what it was and were able to read between the lines. But it's still presented in... Even in modern English translations, this is presented as a case of demon possession. Luke's gospel also contains this same story. Then there's Matthew 12, 22 and Luke eleven fourteen, where we see Jesus casting a demon out of a dumb man. Not dumb as in yes. intellectually, he was Can't mute. Speak. Then we have Mark 1, 32 through 34. And there are other verses out there that chronicle the exorcism work of Jesus. In Mark 1, 32 through 34 and verse 39, in Mark 3, 11, in Luke 7, 21 and 13, 32, we see summary references to Jesus's quote-unquote de-demoning ministry. Make no mistake, Jesus had a reputation for being an exorcist and made it clear that those who were true to him as followers could do it too. John 14, 12 says, Verily I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So all of these things that the disciples watched him do, they were promised that they would also be able to do and were probably expected to do, especially something like demon possession, because with all due respect, it's one of the easiest ones to fake. Hmm. I keep thinking about the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, and I've heard this story many, many, many times over the years, and I keep coming back to the same conclusion about this. Jesus walked in, she was intimidated, her attitude changed, and poof, her demons were gone. Yeah. I mean, that's, that to me is what sounds like is happening there. Right. Now, the Acts of the Apostles makes the point clear by demonstrating that only real believers could even do exorcism. I do believe that the story is in here basically to discourage charlatans and those with other kinds of self-serving motives from attempting to cash in on Jesus's game. If you try to share the spotlight with the Almighty, be prepared to get ripped to shreds. And that is basically the message in Acts 19, 13 through 17, where there were a couple of Jewish guys who decided that they were going to try their hand at exorcism. But they had heard that the real authority was in this Jesus person. So they approached these two men who were allegedly demon-possessed and whom, by the way that they were described in the text, sound to me like they were more like a couple of irritated MAGA types than anything else. So these two guys go in and start agitating them a little bit and trying to cast these demons out of them by standing there and saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. They're literally telling them, we don't really believe this shit, but let's see if it works. (laughs) And they found out because they said, well, we've heard of Paul and we've heard of Jesus. Who the fuck are you? 
and mm. basically just started wailing on them to the point where their clothes were ripped to shreds. They had to run away naked. I would have loved to just be a fly on the wall to see that happen, to be perfectly honest. But these verses also had what I consider to be a very sinister anti-Semitic message, but that is for another episode. And I do absolutely want to get into that aspect of it because there's a lot of evangelical influence in things like neo-Nazism mm-hmm. and the Klan has always also been anti-Jew. So there's more to say on that, but at another time. Getting back to the subject of exorcism, let's take a look at what this looked like in early and medieval Christianity. I'm pulling some of this information from an article on theconversation.com that's also been reprinted in a bunch of different places, including salon.com. I found the same article in both places, and there's some good stuff in here. Origin, and this is a short-ish quote from the article, Origin An early Christian theologian writing in the second century explains how the name of Jesus is used by Christians to expel evil spirits from souls and bodies. Over the years, exorcism came to be associated more widely with the Christian faith. Several Christian writers mention exorcisms taking place publicly as a way to convince people to become Christians. They argued that people should convert because the exorcisms Christians performed were more effective than those of pagans. I mean six of one half a dozen of the other am i the only one who's thinking that right now early christian texts mention various exorcism methods that christians used including making the sign of the cross over possessed persons or even breathing on them you know if they had some garlic they could take care of demons and And vampires vampires at the same time medieval priests in the catholic church were trained to perform exorcisms they pretty much just needed to be certified in it It was one of the earliest certification programs that there was, Mm. was certifying priests to perform exorcisms. Now, I was today years old when I learned about the concept of minor exorcism, which is kind of remarkable considering that I grew up Catholic. Mm. But I found this to be very interesting. And my first read through this, I had some interesting thoughts. It's like minor exorcism. The article frames this as not being for the, quote, acutely possessed. Wait, what? That That's that's like being a little pregnant. I mean, either you're possessed or you're not, right? So what exactly does this mean? Well, this is kind of an extension of the idea of demon possession that the Catholic Church sort of kind of believes targets babies, okay? Mm. Minor exorcism was a common practice before or during infant baptisms as a means of cleansing the child of sinful influences that might, what, cause them to hold on to the original sin that baptism is supposed to remove. It was just a little bit of a bugaboo, a scare tactic. Yeah. Motivated more parents to get their kids baptized, that sort of thing. That's really all that that was. Now, between the 15th and 17th centuries, there was, quote, an increased concern about demons throughout Western Europe. And that is to say that there were pockets of insane panic. Yeah. That was the increased concern. And lest we forget, the Salem witch hysteria happened at the tail end of that timeline. European superstition followed the Puritans and other strict Christian sects to America And it didn't take long before group hysteria and mob rule completely overshadowed logic to the point where a small New England town became the site of a bloodbath in the name of purging Satan from their midst. Or at least that's the excuse they gave. We did a whole episode on that last October. It's an eye-opener. You should listen to it. It's not just for Halloween. (laughs) Medieval exorcism also extended not just to humans, but to animals, certain inanimate objects, and even plots of land that failed to produce crops are those that animals tended to avoid. Object possession is still a big thing in exorcism culture, but the focus is much more on people. When I read the part about animals, the very first thing I thought of was how they hanged two dogs in Salem. Yeah. So there was that. That's just crazy. It's very crazy, but I mean, you can see the kind of things that this whips up. I mean, let's be real. The idea of demon possession is scary. Yeah. And fear is one of the things that these people love to use as motivators. So 
in any possible way that they can scare you, even if it comes down to telling you that your dog is possessed or that a doll is possessed, don't even get me started on the whole thing with The Conjuring and stories about possessed dolls and whatnot. You see the same thing in the Amityville Horror. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot. And they will pick from anything that they can to try to scare people and to try and validate these idiotic things that they believe. Right. Now, getting back to the article, the narratives are also much more detailed. When someone possessed by a demon was confronted by an exorcist priest, it was believed that the demon would be aggravated and cause the individual to engage in more intense and violent behavior. There are reports of physical altercations, floating around the room, and speaking or screaming loudly and angrily during the exorcism process. Protestants at that time took a more passive approach. They believed in demons, but shied away from invasive forms of exorcism, relying more on prayer from a safe distance as the primary combatant. I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to get close to someone that I believed had some kind of supernatural baddie pulling the strings. So that makes sense to me from the standpoint of someone who thinks that way. But also toward the end of the 17th century, the Age of Enlightenment was a time when people started thinking more practically about the causes of so-called demon possession. Between the 17th and 19th centuries, people did begin attributing the symptoms of demon possession to more likely causes, particularly the emerging discipline of psychology. Early mental health professionals viewed perceived possession as a manifestation of much larger but also innate issues within the human mind. They decried exorcism as an ineffective, counterproductive, and unnecessarily dangerous practice that was destined to fail as a long-term solution to mental health problems. But even on the heels of these stunning revelations, Protestant churches and charlatan traveling preachers did a stellar job of keeping the concept of exorcism in the front of people's minds and put on some very disturbing, over-the-top displays of exorcism to both entertain and intimidate the crowds and to get them to pony up when the offering plate was passed. Many of these quote-unquote practitioners were part of the emerging movement that would come to be called evangelical Christianity today. And like I said earlier, exorcism is big business. The Catholic Church still has an active and formal ministry devoted to exorcism in the year 2021. At least you can say that they're consistent in all their travesties against humanity. There's that. But even with a dedicated ministry to address instances of demon possession and exorcism, the level of activity around these things in the Catholic Church pales in both the number of documented incidences and the radical methods used by their own, quote, trained exorcist clergy when compared to a little itty-bitty sect of evangelical Christianity we like to refer to as Pentecostalism. Mm. Quick quote from an ABC News article on this subject. By conservative estimates, there are at least five or six hundred, five or six hundred evangelical exorcism ministries in operation today, and quite possibly two or three times that many. These are the ones they know of. or have wind of and it's the proverbial tip of the iceberg yeah because there's more and i think that we'll be able to demonstrate that there's more because it's not always churches it's not always big functions it's not always overhyped meetings no a lot of these atrocities happen in people's living rooms yeah and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a few now here's another problem that i see with the concept of demon possession and why so many people believe in this, particularly evangelicals. Part of the process of getting saved involves the new convert inviting Jesus into their heart. I'm not sure how I would still be pumping blood if someone (laughs) took up residence in there, but that's what they always told us to believe. While few will have the balls to admit it, this is, it is, a form of possession with the added bonus of consent. Christians are taught to think in terms of being possessed, letting Christ live through you, decreasing so he can increase, and all the other bullshit that they throw at you. It puts thoughts in their heads that they're never alone, even in their own bodies. How difficult is it really under those circumstances to get them to believe that other things could be setting up shop there too? 
Now, many Pentecostal sects flat out dismiss the notion that a Christian can be demon-possessed, but there are two problems. First, when they want to target one of their own for exorcism, they simply make a small semantical shift in the language and call the situation a case of oppression as opposed to possession. Satan can't take up house in the temple of the Holy Spirit, so no, you're not possessed. But those violent mood swings where sometimes you're you and sometimes you're a huge ball of anger and depression, no, it's not bipolar, it's demons, and we need to get them to go. How many times did you and I, either in college or in other settings, have people try to tell us that we were under demonic oppression? Like almost daily. Yeah, for you it was daily. Me, yeah. it wasn't quite that often, but we've talked about this before. Right. I had a lot more outward signs of depression. It was just something I exuded because I was so anxious and depressed and unhappy. True, yeah. And girls are just naturally more forward with each other. Like, they're not going to go up to you and say, oh, I think you're being oppressed by whatever. Guys don't tend to confide in each other as much as girls do. No, that's very true. It's unfortunate, but it's yeah. true. So, yeah, almost daily I would get, like, prayed over or something. It didn't really help and well, probably of course made it, it didn't worse. Help. And yes, of course it made it worse. But, you know, in there, and I don't want to, I don't want to give these people excuses and I don't want it to sound like I'm defending them. But in a lot of those instances, at the end of the day, you could say that there was at least a degree of sincerity to yeah. it. Oh, they wanted to help. They wanted... Now, for you, it was a matter of they wanted to help. For me, it was that they looked at me as a threat because of the way that I thought. And mm -hmm. I kept quiet about 90% of it. Right. But that 10% that sticks up out of the water, that tip of the iceberg, is enough to ruffle a lot of feathers. Yeah. So... People would catch wind of my opinion on something or they would hear a rumor because there were a couple that went around about me in that place. Yeah. Not anything major, you know, nothing that would get me kicked out, but I was doing things that could get me kicked out, you know, all on my own. I didn't need the rumor mill <laughs> for that, but it was just a matter of differences of opinion. Yeah. More than anything else, it boiled down to that. And the whole idea of me being demonically oppressed was more of a weaponized kind of term when yeah. it was aimed at me. You see, the girls in your dorm were concerned about you. Of course. The guys in my dorm were afraid of me. Yeah. And I don't really think that that was a good thing. It was mm -hmm. never anything that I wanted. Even looking back and understanding that this version of me was in there and just constantly clawing to get out constantly trying to uh, to make itself known i can totally understand where a lot of this came from and if i was thinking with the same brain then that i am now i would have considered it a major victory that there were people there who were scared of me <laughs> but at the time i didn't want people to be scared of me i wanted to fit in and i never really did no because there were too many points of disconnect between me and the people on that campus, the way that I thought versus the way that they thought. And it was always going to be an oil and water situation between me and 90% of the people there. The remaining 10%, there were the ones that tolerated me and there were the very, very precious few that actually liked me and wanted to be around me. Right. I know what I was like back then, and I know that there were anger issues, and they were pretty acutely bad anger issues, but I don't think I ever really let it get out of control at school. I was just very moody, yeah. and I had moments and days, and sometimes more, where I just didn't want to be bothered with anyone. But you know what? I had friends who were like that, too. One in particular where you could always tell his mood by how he said hi when you passed him in the hall. I'd say, hey, and I won't say his name. But I'd pass him in the hall and just say, hey, and I could tell what kind of mood he was in because I would either get a hey or a hey, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Or if he would say it first. A lot of times he would say it first, and then there were days where you would see him walking down the hall and he would just be looking down at the, at the floor and yeah. not talking to anyone and just giving you a strained hey back when you said hey, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah. But getting back a little bit more onto the subject, yeah. I don't think that it was a thing that was uh, that was aimed at me quite as much, yeah. but there was a definite 
difference in how between yeah. you and me. Now, there is another problem here when it comes to the whole can a Christian be demon-possessed thing. And that is that any notion that a Christian can't be possessed kind of goes out the window whenever one of them starts showing, quote-unquote, signs of emotional or mental unrest. No one wants to watch people lay hands on an oppressed person and pray for them and everybody just sort of cries and they go their own way. Nope, that's just not at all entertaining. Someone with untreated mental illness who is being slowly driven deeper and deeper into their illness and subsequently showing signs of demon possession, hmm. that'll really get the crowd going. Bring them down front and let's show these people the real power of God. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just let's, and I've seen that before too. Even as outgrowths of some of those altar calls that we did weekly at mm -hmm. Faith Assembly, I saw impromptu exorcisms break out during yeah. that more than once. And yeah. it really just came down to these were people that needed to talk to a good therapist and probably get themselves some kind of pharmaceutical solution to their problem too. What they didn't need was being exercised. But yeah. I saw it. I saw it in the youth group oh, yeah. a couple of times too. I saw it in school. There was one, I think, I think that this was a girl. I don't remember exactly. I just remember the, the people who were involved and how this demon came out and wouldn't speak to anyone except for this one other person on campus. And we just keep repeating, I will only speak to this guy. I will only speak to this guy. And that was all that happened until yeah. they brought this guy into the situation. And then miraculously, within minutes, she's okay. Wow. Yeah. So that, I don't even know if you were on campus at that point. Probably not. I, it was talked about a little bit, but not that much. That one doesn't ring a bell. But yeah, a but lot were, of things don't ring a bell with me. But I can also remember seeing it in chapel once in a while, too. Yeah. And no one had any qualms about exercising these people right in front of everyone and then going right back to this whole notion that a Christian can't be demon-possessed. Well, make up your fucking minds. Yeah. Either this is what's happening or it isn't. Make up your mind. What is going on here? And is there even the remotest possibility that this has something to do with something other than demon possession? Do you think maybe there could be some other cause? At that point, we're talking it was 1990, 1991. Mental health services were a thing then, too. Yes, but okay. not on our campus. Well, no, but not in any evangelical cloister like that either. They're not no. going to tell you to go and see a therapist. The only reason I was ever told to see a therapist was because it was one that actually worked at the fucking school. Yeah. So. Well, he was fired, too. Well, yeah, he was too, he was too Episcopalian for their taste. Yes. They got rid of him, but he was still good enough to refer students to because I guess they still considered him a Christian counselor, even though the few sessions that I did with him, and it was very short lived because there was another person in my life that was kind of tearing away at the process yeah. and making me feel like it wasn't doing me any good when it actually was, but then that happened and it mm -hmm. got into my head that it that it wasn't working and that this person was wrong and all of that. And I just stopped going. And I really wish that I had continued. Imagine what the powers that were at that school at that time would have thought if I went back there and told them that the proceedings were completely and totally secular. Yeah. He asked me if I wanted to start sessions with prayer. And even in the mindset that I was in, I said, if God wants to reveal anything to me about what happens in these sessions, he's welcome to. But this is about me. Yeah. Let's just get to work. That was the way that I dealt with that. Yeah. Purely secular therapy, which I'm certain was most of the reason why this person had to say what he did. And yeah. I mean, it really, it wasn't a long conversation, but it was enough to set my therapy back more than 20 plus years. Yeah. So... I didn't want to try it again for a very, very long time after that. But since we're trailing off again, mm. but you know, I think that these little side roads that we take help people. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of people out there who have gone through a lot of the same stuff. And yeah, you know what? These two things are kind of related 
And I know that there are people out there that have gone through the same misery of being told that the most viable solutions to their problems are irrelevant. Yeah. And just steering them back into the mindset of things like Christian counseling and worrying about being possessed or oppressed by demons because that's where they want to keep you. You know, we talked about it many, many episodes ago, how they strip you of your sense of self so that they can just keep controlling everything. So I think that a lot of these little side comments and side stories that we tell, I think that there are people out there that get it. And I do think that it's relevant. Yeah, Um, definitely. Another observation that I made from one of the articles that I was reading on this is that I find, and I always did, but, you know, reading about it kind of brings it all to the forefront. I always found it very interesting how many church members suddenly come down with cases of demonic oppression and possession when a traveling preacher whose ministry focus is on possession and exorcism rolls into town. Time to deal with those unruly teenagers without stoning them. They have demons of opposition oppressing them. Margaret may finally be set free from those manic and depressed swings. Maybe my husband will stop cheating on me if we can exercise that demon of lust out of him. And you know, I keep eating because the voices tell me to. I hope this man can help get them to leave me alone. Yeah. And these are the things that people think when they walk into meetings like this, oh, yeah. where they are told that this is what's going to be dealt with. There is literally a demon out there for every sin. And if they can convince you that your problems are supernatural and not emotional or medical, the fear of this thing oppressing or possessing you is something that they need to feed in you. They can't offer any practical solutions because practical is not entertaining and it doesn't put dollars in offering plates. We've said it many times. They will say and do anything to keep you coming back and to keep you dependent on them. And their plan works. An astounding half of Americans believe that demonic possession is a real thing, even those who aren't particularly religious. And that goes right back to us getting our truth from a screen. Yeah. That's really what it boils down to. We see movies like The Conjuring. And let me tell you, if this was a Catholic podcast, I'd be going off on the Warrens right now. Yeah. More recently, you've got movies like The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and there have been a bunch of others. But popular media has a lot of influence over what we think about things. So even if you aren't particularly religious, if you can be scared into believing this stuff, then eventually you might go looking for a remedy and you might stumble into your local AG church. Yeah. Now, among atheists, the numbers of perceived demon possessions are much lower. And coincidentally, atheists almost never experience the kinds of things that are associated with demon possession. This is mostly because by the time someone suggests demon possession as a cause, that person has already been to a doctor or a licensed mental health professional to deal with the issues. They've nipped it in the bud before any preacher or any well-meaning Christian in their workplace can get to them about this, which is all kinds of good. Because not only does the practice of exorcism not solve a single one of the problems that I mentioned or the plethora of others that I didn't, it can and does turn murderous in an alarming number of cases. I'm going to steer away from incidents that don't involve evangelical influence, but there are a number of indigenous religious traditions that also use exorcism to this day, with the result being people, and far too often children, dying at the hands of their spiritual deliverers. This is a religion problem first, and an evangelical problem second, but like with many things, the cultural influence of evangelical thought spreads these kind of beliefs with the destructive force of an aggressive cancer. And here are just a few examples of how. From an article in The Guardian that hit just last year, I'm going to read this story. And, you know, this was one of those moments where I kind of had to walk away for a couple of minutes because it pissed me off so bad that I just had to kind of regroup so that I could think about the next point just a little bit more. But just listen to this. Just listen to how how god-awful this is. Seven people were killed in a bizarre religious ritual in a jungle community in Panama in which indigenous residents were rounded up by about 10 lay preachers and tortured, beaten, burned, and hacked with machetes to make them, quote, repent their sins. 
10 people were arrested. Police freed 14 members of the Ngabe Bugle indigenous group, I'm sure I butchered that, who had been tied up and beaten with wooden cudgels and Bibles. Alerted by three villagers who escaped and made their way to a local hospital for treatment earlier, police were prepared for something bad, but were still surprised by what they found at an improvised church at a ranch where a little-known religious sect known as the New Light of God was operating. They were performing a ritual inside the structure. In that ritual, there were people being held against their will, being mistreated, according to prosecutor Rafael Beloyes. All of these rites were aimed at killing them if they did not repent their sins. There was a naked person, a woman, inside the building where investigators found machetes, knives, and a ritually sacrificed goat. About a mile away from the church building, authorities found a freshly dug grave with the corpses of six children and one adult. The dead included five children as young as a year old, their pregnant mother, and a 17-year-old female neighbor. That's where I closed the lid and walked away. Yeah. They searched this family out to hold a ritual and they massacred them. Killed practically the whole family, said Beloyas, adding that one of the suspects in the killing is the grandfather of the children who were slain. One of them said God had given them a message. That message apparently boiled down to making everyone repent or die. The sect had reportedly only been operating in the area for about three months. Imagine if they had gone undetected for longer. In September of 2016, we have, this was pretty highly publicized. I remember it, at least in passing, I remembered it a lot more when I started reading this. But this happened in Rockville, Maryland in 2016. A Germantown mother pleaded guilty to killing two of her children and stabbing her two older children during an exorcism in 2014. Zakia Avery, 31, dabbed her eyes with a tissue as Montgomery County prosecutors described what a judge called a, quote, gruesome and chilling attack. She pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of attempted first-degree murder. Avery and housemate Manifa Sanford told investigators that they believed evil spirits had moved between the bodies of the children, ages one and two, and that an exorcism was needed to drive out the demons. In children, aged one and two. Jeez. The psychiatric evaluation performed at Clifton T. Perkins Hospital was inconclusive. So were they crazy or weren't they? Mm. That's the real scary kind of balance that exists with this. Yeah. Because is it crazy if these thoughts have been planted in your head from the time that you can understand? Is it crazy? No, I don't think so. I think these people were in their right minds, but those minds had been so poisoned with all of this shit that yeah. this is what happened. These are the types of things that fear can drive you to. Yeah. Something about these kids made these people, their own mother and a neighbor, start thinking that there was something going on. And I think right back to the Salem witch trials, wondering whether or not this could have been some kind of an allergic reaction to something, whether or not there was something environmental that was causing these things, whatever was going on with these kids to happen. And that's precisely where my mind went because it really did look like that was what was going on with the quote-unquote afflicted girls of Salem too. Prosecutor Peter Feeney read an 18-page description of the horrific attacks on Avery's children that caused some of her family members to cry, gasp, and even leave the courtroom. Avery's youngest child, one-year-old Norell, was stabbed more than 20 times by his mother while Sanford spoke in tongues and laid hands on the boy. Her daughter, Ziana, age two, was choked and stabbed to death, although it is unclear which woman stabbed her. Two older children, an eight-year-old son, Martello, and five-year-old daughter, Tania, begged their mother to stop before each was stabbed in the chest. As her son yelled to his mother, she told the boy, these are the sort of demons that can get inside you. After the intended exorcism, the women cleaned up the scene and prepared the children to see God. 
After accepting Avery's guilty pleas, the judge heard testimony from a child friend of Avery's who recalled her speaking to herself and hearing voices. Avery's mother testified that she had her daughter involuntarily committed to an institution when she was, quote, manic and suicidal. In January 2015, Sanford pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of attempted first-degree murder under a plea agreement with prosecutors. Sanford was found not criminally responsible, so someone thought she was crazy. The Maryland equivalent of an insanity defense and has been committed to the Clifton T. Perkins Hospital for an undetermined period of time. They just tucked her away from society. Yeah. And there she will probably stay for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's another one. October 2nd, 2019, a man was arrested and charged with first-degree murder after he allegedly killed his six-year-old son while trying to exercise a demon from him with hot water. Mm. The boy's father, Pablo Martinez, reportedly told officials that he, quote, saw something evil in the child and, quote, knew that he had to cast the demon out. Romelia Martinez told police that her husband was giving the six-year-old and another unidentified child a bath. The other child left the bathroom crying at some point. She said she, quote, heard a gurgling sound coming from the bathroom, but the door was locked. When she unlocked it, she said she witnessed her husband holding their son under the faucet. She shouted at him to stop, but her husband allegedly said he, quote, needed to save them. Pablo Martinez told police that he guessed the child was underwater for about five to ten minutes. He then attempted CPR and poured cold water over the boy. Romelia Martinez said she called a pastor who did not answer before she called 911. Let's read that again. Romelia Martinez said she called a pastor who did not answer before she called 911. Because that's where the real help was going to come from. Jesus fucking Christ. The six-year-old was taken to the Banner University Medical Center but was pronounced dead. He had burns covering 15% of his body from being scalded with water. I don't even know how much more of this I can read through. I've already, no. I think I've done my part just extracting these stories. Yeah. And, oh. you know... God. I'm doing this because the brighter a light that we can shine on this stuff, yeah. the more people are going to see it for what it is. And also, you know, when you read them all out, like in a row, it tells you how big the problem is. Oh, yeah. Because you hear these things in one-off and two-off type of things. Maybe you'll hear about one every few months. But it's like a lot of these took place like really recently. Mm -hmm. And hearing a bunch of them all at once lets you know that this is a big problem. For every one of them you hear about, there's probably a hundred that you don't. Oh, more than that. Yeah. I've put it this way before where it's not just the tip of the iceberg, it's a crystal at the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. That's how big this is. Because these things happen all the time and are happening as we speak. Make no doubt about it. These are not things that just crop up once every couple of years. Right. These are things that are happening as we are sitting here recording this episode. It's happening somewhere. And probably in a whole lot of somewheres. Yeah. So... Let's move on ahead and talk about another incident that happened in 2019. A nine-year-old boy died during an exorcism carried out by members of a religious sect, including his own parents. The boy, named only as David Kay, was gagged to stifle his screams as he was whipped by his father and other adults in an effort to drive out demons, it is claimed. His mother, his mother is alleged to have held him down during the violent ritual. As a mother, how do you do this? You carried this person in your body for nine months. Mm. You did everything that you could to nurture them and keep them alive when they were infants. And they get to be nine years old. And now all of a sudden, this is something that you can even bring yourself to do. Mm. This is where this religion takes people. And it is where it will take your brain if you don't get out. It's that simple because I may not have always been horribly ensconced in this, but I was convinced that I saw demons from time to time. Yeah. I went around and anointed our entire apartment at one point because I was convinced that there were demons in there. 
So I've been there and I know what it can do when you just step one little toe into this kind of thought. And I've always been a rational person. I've always been a smart person. But even I believed in this enough to start anointing doorposts with oil. Yeah. Okay. So this is where this kind of thinking will bring you if you don't get out. But back to the story, both parents are among a number of sect members detained on suspicion of murder in connection with the horrific case in Yekaterinburg, Russia. That's where this was happening. Following the boy's death, the members of the Disciples of Jesus Christ group is alleged to have prayed by his body for two days in a bid to resurrect him. When that failed, David's body was buried in a woodland close to a lake. Police discovered it following a tip-off from his aunt. David's father was held in Russia alongside a female sect leader named Zemfira Genelina. That's the best I'm going to do with that. And just before her arrest, she posted this, quote, Many times we were persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ, but no one could blame us for anything because there was no crime in us. No one could forbid us to live the way the Lord Jesus Christ leads us. Now, the Semphira Ganelina is said to be one of the leaders of the Disciples of Jesus Christ who was responsible for this atrocity. Dr. Alexander Naviv, an expert on religious cults in Russia, said, quote, In this sect, it was believed that sinfulness should be beaten out of children. It was necessary to fight the devil. When punishing a child, you should not pay attention to his or her suffering because in hell, he or she will suffer even more. Of course, a person whose head is filled with such nonsense is simply not able to understand that a child should not be hurt. So there's our answer right there, isn't it? Crazy. That's terrible. It's just another way of saying what I just said. Their brains had become so addled by the Kool-Aid that they just didn't understand that this was wrong. Their brains could not process it being wrong. Last but not least, and thankfully, thankfully, this is the last one that I decided to zero in on. And I mean, we could, we absolutely could just keep going and going and going with this. But just one more last little story here. December 28th, 2020, mere months ago, the parents of a four-year-old Missouri girl allegedly killed by neighbors to remove a demon pleaded not guilty Monday to charges connected to the case. Mary S. Mast, 29, and James A. Mast, 28, both of Lincoln, Missouri, were charged with felony child endangerment resulting in death and are jailed without bond. The couple's other children, a two-year-old son and an infant, were placed in protective custody. The girl was found dead at the family home on December 20th. Knox said that she had been severely beaten and dunked in an icy pond as part of what appeared to be a, quote, religious-type episode. They stopped short of saying exorcism, but that's what it was. Across the road, neighbors Ethan Mass, 35, and Courtney Almond, 21, were charged last week with second-degree murder and other offenses. Both are jailed without bond. Here's the tie-in right here. Both families attend the same church, but Knox said that the actions involving the girl are not condoned by the church, which he declined to name. Bullshit. Mm. This came from somewhere. A probable cause statement from Benton County Sergeant Chris Wilson said the girl was already dead and had, quote, severe purple bruising over her body, along with ruptured blisters, when he was called to the home. Knox said that the girl's parents also had been beaten along with the two-year-old. The infant was unharmed. James Mass told investigators he and his wife observed the beating of their daughter, but were told they were beaten or shot if they tried to intervene. Still, Wilson asked James Mast how he could let people do this to his family, and he stated that they were told his wife had a demon inside her and her children would end up just like her if it was not taken care of. Ethan Mass told investigators that he and Almond used a leather belt to beat the girl on December 19th. She was then taken to a pond behind the home where she was dunked in the water on a day when high temperatures were in the 40s. So these are the kinds of things that are happening all over the world, all fueled by evangelical thought. And while there are definitely incidents of murder by exorcism that exist outside the realm of evangelicalism, the numbers are tiny in comparison. 
And you know what? I kind of got a little bit of a jab with the one that I read about that girl in Australia who has some kind of mental illness that led to her killing her mother. And she was a huge fan of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. So you can tell what that scene looked like. But the thing that got me about that story was that they made a point of telling the readers that this mother had spent thousands of dollars trying to get her daughter help. And then you find out that those thousands of dollars actually went to a medium. Yeah. Okay. So not an evangelical thing, but believe me, I thought about our stint in Wicca and paganism and some of the things that I saw there too, because there were a lot of very sincere people, but I also saw some stuff that was really, really, really out there. Yeah. And it is standard practice for the common charlatan type medium to do things like this. Keep siphoning money off of people, promising results that never happen. But you know, is it really that much different than the way that evangelicals do things? They promise people that they're going to be delivered from their demons and their problems just don't get solved. It gets worse. And then the finger of blame is pointed at them. Well, this isn't working because you don't believe it and because you don't have enough faith in your God. Bullshit. It's not working because you need a therapist. You need a pill. You need time away. You need something. You need someone to validate what is going on with you and not point fingers in the direction of supernatural anything because that is not where the solutions are going to be found period one of the things that i like a lot about our show and the way that we do things is that we don't typically report on stuff without also offering ways to counter it in this instance i think that the answer to how you get around this whole thing of exorcism and getting caught up in it is pretty simple and it really it comes down to the same thing that we counter everything else with around here and that's just a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of truth so with that in mind the only way religious sects organizations and ministries get away with any of this is because they're well funded so here's an idea you want to know what you can do about this how you can start steering yourself and other people away from it I'm putting out a call to ex-tithers at this point who are still in the mindset of giving but want to do something significant with the money that they give. Here's an idea. Start supporting mental health charities. And I think that you will feel very good about where your money is going, provided that you vet the places that you send your money and know what it's going to be used for. I think that you will feel way better about your money going to that than going into a belief system that is designed to keep people sick and in extreme cases make them dead, especially over this issue. If that's something that you would like to consider, along with references to every story and every quote that I used in tonight's episode, I have a link in the show notes that outlines a bunch of mental health charities that you can go in and peruse and learn a little bit more about and decide if maybe this might be a good thing for you to start considering supporting because... I also, you know, there's this big conservative thing going around now where every time there's a new shooting and we did have like two of them in the last week, every time there's a new mass shooting, they love to point fingers at the individual and say, well, it wasn't the gun that killed those people. It was the crazy person that killed them. And it was a, it was an issue of mental illness. You see how, you see what they do there? Yeah. All of a sudden when it benefits them. Yeah. They admit what the actual problem is. I didn't hear anyone talking about demon possession with either of these things. But the gun control crowd, the the anti-gun control crowd, were very quick to say, well, these people were classic cases of lunatics. So it wasn't the guns that killed them. Well, if I know a thing or two about conservatives, I also know that there's a large number of them who are evangelicals. So where did that lunacy come from? Think about it. Just for a few moments, think about it. So you want to counter that? Then counter it with your dollars. Counter it with your time. If you have any inclination to work with any of these charities and they operate near you, then by all means, use some of that time and volunteer also. And one last ditch appeal to those of you who are out there who are suffering from things that you don't understand that you have been told are the product of 
supernatural forces that are weighing on your soul. Let me make this perfectly abundantly crystal clear. You have some kind of issue that has nothing to do with anything supernatural. Mental health issues are not shameful. And if you feel like there's something going on inside yourself that you cannot control, it's time to talk to a licensed and credible therapist about it. I've said it before on this show. I'm just making another appeal because I understand where your thinking is coming from right now. And I understand just how terrifying it can be thinking about this from the standpoint of demon possession and wondering if you need to be exercised. You do not get on the phone, call a therapist, go to seculartherapy.org, find a therapist, go to psychology today, find a therapist, get yourself some actual help and stop listening to the voices that are telling you that this has anything to do with anything supernatural. It does not. Another thing that I think that we can do to counter all of this is we can also be vocal when people start talking about demon possession and exorcism as legit ways to deal with mental health issues. This is where the concept of counter-apologetics comes into play. Educate yourself about not just the what's, but the why's involved with these kinds of behaviors. Plant better thoughts in people's heads and give them the opportunity to weigh practical thought and productive actions against the purely nonsensical thoughts and actions that result in things like young girls being drowned and beaten with Bibles. For those still in this, take a leaf from your own book and make strides to, quote, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. That's Proverbs 24.11, and it applies here. If the point is deliverance, but murder is the result. Is it ever right? Did Jesus ever kill someone in his effort to exercise them? He sent some pigs over a cliff, but he never killed a person in an effort to exercise them. If you're honest with yourself, you would have to come to the conclusion that these methods, practices, and outcomes are unacceptable, especially when weighed against observable biblical mandates and examples. Stop attending deliverance services. Stop giving money to demon hunting preachers. Don't engage in conversations where you're forced to agree with assessments of demonic possession when it's clear that the subject of the conversation has actual treatable illnesses and disorders that will never, ever, ever be solved or treated properly with olive oil, laying on of hands, forcible restraint, beating, waterboarding, scalding, or burning. Stop advocating for standing up with practices that keep people sick at best and lead to their deaths at worst. Don't be complicit in the loss of life that comes from their or other people's beliefs in demonic possession and exorcism. Think differently about the nature of mental, emotional, and behavioral disorders and try, just try, to approach the subject of demon possession and exorcism from the angle that leads people away from harm and toward finding real help for their issues. It's a practical, empathetic and rational way of helping people counter real problems with real solutions that lead to longer, happier, healthier lives, but much more importantly, leads them to getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.